Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of the Venture Games Podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, and today I'm excited to introduce my next guest, Marlon Nichols, Managing General Partner at Mac Venture Capital. How's it going, Marlon? Great, great. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time and joining me here. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. So to kick things off, for those who don't know you, can we just dive into your professional background? Yeah, uh, so I'll go all the way back to undergrad. So studied awesome. management information systems at uh, Northeastern University in Boston, graduated and joined a startup. I was a kind of a founding employee at a seed stage enterprise software startup called Frictionless Commerce, where I spent, I think, somewhere between three and four years, ultimately helped the company expand into the UK and Europe, and then they were sold to SAP. From there, I transitioned to a career in consulting. First, I was working with the Blackstone Group on kind of post M&A transactions. So like the, the integration work, the technology selection, the you know shared service organization creation, all that stuff. And then from there, transitioned over into straight strategy consulting with a focus on media and entertainment. So I worked with companies like Warner Music and McGraw-Hill at the point in time where the internet was was starting to become ubiquitous or, or proliferate mm-hmm. and they were experiencing their own uh, kind of challenges in their industry so the the job was basically to help them navigate that ultimately i decided i didn't want to operate you know one company and i didn't want to be a consultant so what was next and i set my sights on venture capital decided to go back to business school to pursue it i landed at cornell university at, at the johnson school and um, had the privilege of, of leading the school's pre-seed fund for a year and a half of the two years that I was there as its CEO. And that kind of set me up to land a job at Intel Capital, which at the time was one of the largest and most active venture firms in the world. I think in those days, we were deploying anywhere between 200 and 500 million per year in primarily Series A and Series B startups. And um, yeah, had a had a nice run there about five years and then decided it was time to move on and create my own vehicle. And so that first vehicle was called Cross Culture, a seed stage fund. And the current vehicle is kind of an extension of that or uh, iteration of that, um, which is called Mac Venture Capital, also a seed stage venture fund. So that's the, yeah, that's the kind of the short version of the, of the career. Awesome. And I actually just briefly wanted to go even further back you know, so I know you are actually from Jamaica. My mom is from Jamaica as well. So, you know, there aren't a ton of Jamaican VC investors in the US or I'm sure probably not in the world. And so, you know, I know you're young when you're in Jamaica. So by any chance, did you even have any idea that this whole sort of startup world even existed when you were there? And (laughs) are there other Jamaican investors that you are aware of? (laughs) <laughs> so the, I mean, the short answer is no. I mm-hmm. I came to the U.S. when I was seven, mm-hmm. uh, so I didn't. I I mean, I barely knew what a firefighter was, right? <laughs> um, sure. But I, I did spend you know every summer until I was about fifteen uh, in in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I basically, kind of grew up in both places. Uh, other Jamaican investors, I'm not sure. I, there's some Haitian mm-hmm. investors and definitely uh, some Hispanic folks, but. Sure. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, no one's coming to mind in terms of, uh, they're, and they're definitely um, uh, founders, like entrepreneurs. Yeah. 
but um, investors, I'm not so sure. Mm-hmm. Sure, of. at least they're they're not. It's not coming to my mind right now. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's great. You could uh, could help put Jamaica on the map, and I hope I'm able <laughs> to help there as well. So you know, another another thing that I want to touch on that's just kind of interesting, right? Is that Mac, from my understanding at least, is a merger of two different funds, and mergers within BC are pretty uncommon. And so I'm just curious, why did these two funds come together? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I was at a, I guess, at a, a crossroads with cross culture <laughs> where, you know, uh, we had built a pretty successful fund. You know, it was a sub $50 million fund. Though. And, um, you know, I didn't have a, a full-time, uh, another full-time general partner mm-hmm. um, with me. My, uh, my co-founder, and, and partners, Troy Carter, and, you know, Troy is a music mogul, plays in a lot of different spaces at the mm-hmm. same time. And so, you know, to, to build the, the franchise that I had in mind or have in mind, I knew that I needed a larger team, a, a larger, more, you know, dedicated team. Um, I say dedicated as opposed to committed because Troy is very committed. But in terms of, you know, time, we have to split that with, you know, other endeavors. And so, you know, I thought to myself, I can go and I can, you know, try to hire a bunch of folks and build relationships over a period of time and, you know, and, and then, and then Mm -hmm. kind of launch or whatever, or relaunch, or I could um, start conversations with groups that have a similar mindset and um, that, you know, we've had experience working with in the past. And, you know, the, the, the top group um, that came out of that consideration was the, the team at M Ventures, mm-hmm. you know, um, Adrian, Mike, and Charles. And so we started to have those conversations and, you know, spent about six months getting to see what it would be like to actually work together day in and day out. And then at the top of 2019, decided that, you know, we were going to give it a shot and actually go through the legal process of creating a um, a new firm and a new fund. And we just, you know, pulled our resources together and and created it. So, and it worked out, right? So our first fund was 110 million is what we closed on, which was a a bit higher than, than what we're actually um, trying to raise. So, Mm -hmm. so we're happy about that. And, um, you know, and it's performed really well, right? Um, Today, I mean, we're, we're for our vintage, we're in the, you know, top five percentile in terms of performance. So it's worked out pretty, pretty well. And, you know, we're, we're all committed to, to building, you know, multi-generational firm. And then before we dive further into Mac and some of the other things you're up to, you know, I know you also spent some time uh, playing basketball overseas. And so number one, I guess, what level did you actually get to as far as your, your basketball career? And how has your experience as a basketball player and an athlete informed sort of your investing or just your professional career at all? Yeah. Um, so to how far I got, it was a semi-pro team in, in the UK. So pretty competitive. For me, it was more of a, a chance to, I was in a foreign country, <laughs> didn't, <laughs> didn't know a lot of people. So it was a chance to um, kind of build a community, mm-hmm. if you would, and do something that I, I've basically done a good percentage of my life and, and I was pretty good at and and also get a chance to see see the UK because we would you know travel on the weekends to mm-hmm. different parts of the country to, to compete. I, I think sports in general 
there are a lot of transferable skills, you know, to, to business and, and life, right? Being a good teammate is, is, is one, you know, that always comes to, to mind. Not everyone's a good, a good teammate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, being on, you know, on, on sports teams kind of teaches you what that's about, you know, about uh, when you have to, to sacrifice, when you have to be a little bit selfish, when you have to get in the face of some of your teammates to, you know, to get them to understand that they're not moving in the right direction. And, um, you know, that needs to change if we're going to be successful to, you know, knowing the role that, that you have to play on, on the team. Right. So, you know, do you have to, are you a starter? Do you need to come off the bench? Mm -hmm. You know, are you, you know, is your, is your focus defense and rebounding versus scoring or are you a passer? Right. Um, or are you just the floor general, like all these different, different things, right? It's the same thing, right? Like when we think about our, our venture funds, like there are certain types of companies that I'm going to be the point on and certain types that Adrian and Mike are going to be um, the, the points on, you know, when we're, when we're fundraising, you know, there are different roles that we play um, in that process because we're strong in, in different ways, right? So, so I think those are probably the, the, the top two lessons, right? How to be a good teammate and knowing your role on on the team beyond that like it's just like the the art (laughs) of competition right Mm -hmm. just and and believing in yourself and your in your team that's not something that uh is is really taught it's Mm -hmm. it's like experienced and you know and um and it just comes about yeah no i think it's great i uh i grew up playing soccer not nearly (laughs) at the level of you i i played you know, varsity and travel, but, you know, was definitely more in that bench player category than, uh, than the starting category. Yeah, but I absolutely agree. I think just, you know, working with a team, re- uh, learning how to push yourself, all those things are, are really great skills uh, to pick up from, uh, from sports. Okay, so to dive in further to, uh, to what you're doing at Mac, you know, I know you touched on this a bit already, but what does Mac actually focus on, you know, as far as stage, sector thesis and then for you personally what are some sectors that you're particularly interested in right so we're a seed stage fund first and foremost um the vast majority of the deals that we do are going to be at the seed stage and we typically define that as you know um, a company has built a viable product and they have either already kind of recently taken it to market or are about to take it to market those are the companies that's kind of our sweet spot. And then in, in terms of like sector and space and industry, we're agnostic for the most part, right? We, we definitely lean more software than like way more software than hardware. We, we definitely lean way more uh, technology tech enabled than, than CPG. Like they might be less than 1% of what we do would be a CPG, but we are also a thematic fund, right? And, and our theme or our thesis is something we call cultural investing, which is basically trying to, taking a look at the way that humans are behaving around the world and trying to identify emerging behavioral trends that we believe you know, will stick around and become a part of popular culture. And so the one thing that's, you know, that's consistent about business, whether it's a you know, consumer focused business or enterprise focused business is that they're comprised of people and, you know, people take actions, they behave. And so if we can, we can kind of get to the root um, of what drives all types of business, which is people and their behaviors, you know, we can start to make predictions about 
what's going to um, take off next and invest along those lines. Uh, and so that's what we do. Out of our current fund, you know, we've invested in, in space technology. We've invested in fintechs. We've invested in marketplaces, exchanges, you know, uh, digital health, enterprise SaaS, you know, kind of uh, media and entertainment technology, even a couple of social platforms. So, you know, where our, our reach is pretty, is pretty broad, but that underlying theme, you know, sits across everything that we do. And the other thing is that we'll never make an investment if we don't believe that we can add um, a good deal of value to the entrepreneurs and the, and the company that they're building. Mm-hmm. And then not too long ago, you, you guys wrote a piece on sort of, you know, quote unquote, the state of technology and culture. And the subheading to this particular piece was was gaming takeover. And so within gaming, you know, what are some of the uh, interesting cultural trends that you guys have seen that you think are uh, interesting from an investment standpoint? Wow, that feels like ages ago now. <laughs> I mean, I try to try to pull back from it. You know, one of the things that that we, we definitely saw is that there there were more more women um, that are in the in the gaming industry than than um, the industry gets credit for. Mm-hmm. And you know, and, and they're and they're coming in in a significant way. They're also more um, there's a growing number of uh, diverse people in in the space. The other thing that we saw, um, you know, amateur going to professional, right? There are more and more vehicles or platforms to cultivate, you know, your, your, your gaming prowess, if you would, or skill set, and, and then uh, which would then allow you to kind of graduate to a, a more professional ranks or more structured gaming. So, you know, there are even scholarships in, in college for gaming now. So it's growing. Uh, the other thing is the types of games, right? So, you know, if you think about like competitive gaming, that's that's more console and, you know, got your headset on and you, <laughs> you're doing a thing like 24 mm-hmm. seven. Um, but uh, there's a huge space around like social games and mobile centric games as, as well. And then also there's just the concept of gamifying a lot of different things. Like, you know, we saw you know, companies that were building kind of almost game feeling products for construction where, you know, there's very serious people doing very serious things, but, mm-hmm. you know, they're using this, this platform uh, that essentially is structured like a game to, to build. So, uh, yeah, we, we've seen a, a lot of different things in and around the space. The, the, the biggest takeaway, though, is that it's not slowing down mm-hmm. and it's going to um, bleed out into basically all aspects of our lives, right? It, you know, it may not be called a game, but, you know, the, I guess the, the attributes of a, of a game um, uh, will, will be embedded into it. Yeah, no, I agree. I definitely would agree that the lines are seemingly blurring in a lot of, of areas. And, you know, in some cases, it's hard to tell whether something is a game, you know, or is this just another experience that's increasingly gamified? Um, yeah, so obviously, maybe a bit of bias on my end, but, you know, of course, I do think uh, gaming is going to uh, to impact not just the gaming and the entertainment industry, but a whole host of industries. Yeah. So sort of following up on that, um, I'm just curious, are you a gamer yourself? If not today, have you been a gamer in the past? Uh, I was in the past. I don't, I, I just got to find the time to mm-hmm. try to do it again. But growing up, I had an Atari, I had a ColecoVision, I had a Commodore 64 for the games. 
I then I had a Nintendo, Xbox 360, mm-hmm. PlayStation. Uh, <laughs> I yeah, I was I was definitely big into games as um, like through college, and then mm-hmm. uh, something shifted. I think it was just time. <laughs> and, what, and what kind of games uh, were you playing back then when you when you were a gamer? All types of things. Halo was a big one that mm-hmm. that I used to kind of group play. You know, definitely the the sports games. The um, you know, I guess they're like two K two K series, and yeah, and a bunch of fighting game fighter games too. Mm-hmm. Like Nintendo, I remember like Zelda and Metroid. Yeah, I'm like dating myself now, but <laughs> you know. <laughs> No, the, the classics are definitely uh, still worth playing today. So, yeah, definitely uh, good taste. You know, but you have actually made a couple uh, gaming investments as well. And so one I wanted to talk about briefly is just your investment in Play Versus. What was sort of the thinking there? Um, and how do you expect Play Versus to sort of impact the gaming industry going forward? Yeah, I mean, so before anything else, you know, that investment was a bet on, on Delane, the, mm-hmm. um, the CEO and founder. Like, um, I think he's a, he's an exceptional human being and, um, and is going to, uh, to make a significant impact on kind of the startup, the startup world, tech world in general. Um, so I definitely wanted to, um, to work with him and, and mm-hmm. do things with him. And, and, you know, he's also a friend now. Um, we've gotten to know each other a bit beyond that. It's kind of what I was saying before, right? If you, as a you know, training ground and, and having a, a more structured structured path to mm-hmm. to the professional ranks, and um, that's what play versus you know has has created essentially, right? Just like you for you know uh, the NBA, if you you know you're gonna play in in high school or prep school, you're gonna play in college or um, you know nowadays maybe overseas. And and then you then you play in the NBA, right? And be a pro. The NFL, it's definitely high school and um and the NCAA uh to get to the NFL. And you know, baseball, you've got the minors, high school minors and, and then and then the majors or high school uh college and and then and then the majors. But there wasn't anything like that for gaming. Mm-hmm. And and play versus basically created that, right? They're the one singular platform uh where you could do everything that you need to do to run you know an inter um inter high school sports league and now inter college um sports league as opposed to intra right it's easy mm-hmm. to to do intra you know to just run tournaments within your um your school or your your organization it's a little bit harder when you have to um go across and and work with leagues and and do all this stuff and, and um, play versus basically created the platform or structure um, to be able to do that. And so that's, that's kind of what I, what I saw, right. Gaming is going to be, it is very popular. You know, you, you saw that with like Twitch and, and things like that. Like people watch other people play games. It's like, it's a thing and only growing. And, and there's a lot of money to be made in the, in the space. So given that there are going to be more and more people coming to it, and, you know, kids like to do things that um, they see, you know, professional entertainers uh, and athletes do. And so it was just a matter of time and they created the platform to do it. So it was uh, that one was a simple mm-hmm. decision for us. Yeah. And then, you know, just sort of highlighting some of the things you touched on, right, and tying into the cultural impact. You know, when we were younger, it certainly wasn't the case that gaming was this very mainstream thing that's super relevant to the culture. You know, in fact, when 
I was younger, you know, not too long ago, like when I was in high school and those sorts of things, you know, people weren't uh, openly talking about gaming, you know, openly planning uh, gaming sessions together and all those other things is a bit more sort of stigmatized, you know, so it's great to be creating this platform, you know, where, where folks can, you know, be more open about their gaming, but also, you know, more formally prepare uh, to become athletes, you know, just as you would for any other sport. So another one of your gaming investments, right, is in uh, in FaZe Clan. So I just love to hear the thinking here and sort of how you see, you know, FaZe Clan and some of these other gaming and lifestyle brands uh, sort of influencing the culture going forward. Yeah, so, you know, FaZe Clan is essentially a, a team, right? But there's mm-hmm. so much more than a team. You know, it is it is a lifestyle brand and, you know, it's a company that has like a variety of revenue streams mm-hmm. right? from merch to entertainment to uh, to the creator economy and then back to the, the core of everything, uh, gaming. And, you know, there just wasn't another company that had a team that had all these, this, these other uh, revenue streams and the type of reach that Face Clan has, right? And so that's what it, that's essentially what it came down to. And then they, they, um, on the gaming side, they compete well too, right? So mm-hmm. they're usually first, second place, um, you know, in tournaments. But in addition to that, you know, they're a bigger brand than the Kardashians, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can't, you can't really ignore that. Um, and I, and I believe they're the highest revenue grossing franchise given all those different revenue streams, uh, kind of in the professional gaming space. And then when you did first invest in FaZe Clan, did you sort of envision it becoming sort of the thing that it is today? I know it wasn't super long ago. And then as you look forward, you know, sort of what are the things that you see, you know, FaZe Clan evolving into or its brand or its reach going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be more of the same in terms of um, uh, brand evolution and mm-hmm. um I guess, importance or, or reach. I, I think that's just only, that's only going to escalate in a positive way in terms of, yeah, what we saw, you know, they didn't have all the, all the lines of business that they mm-hmm. have today. Definitely not. Um, it was mainly the gaming and the merch, but you know, at, at that time they were selling, they were selling like tons of the merch in, in like a day. Mm-hmm. And so you could, you can clearly see that there was a, a significant following here had you know if, since they're able to do that and then all the quote unquote influencers that were just around it, it you could just feel that there was something unique and special growing in and around this 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 company so it was kind of those things and like i said they they were generating revenue right mm-hmm. a lot of these a lot of these gaming franchises were not generating um uh, real revenue, right. right? Just from you know whatever they would win in a tournament. So yeah, that that was kind of the, the the rationale. And I think they're still young in 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 terms of what they're building. Uh, so there's a lot of um, a lot of runway left. Mm-hmm. And then shifting gears away from uh, from gaming, you know, but still around culture. And so another one of your investments is in Blavity. And Morgan, the CEO, is you know one of the few uh, African American women to raise you know significant venture funding. And so you know, I'd just love to hear sort of your thoughts as far as like what are some of the barriers to you know African American entrepreneurs, but specifically African American females, in raising specific venture funding. You know, what was your thesis here, and are you hopeful that this will you know lead to a trend of more 
African-American females uh, getting funding and, and, you know, hopefully more interest in these types of investments? Yeah, so yeah, African-Americans definitely need, Black folks need more funding. (laughs) And Black women definitely need more funding. And I'm definitely here to to help and to and to see that happen. And the thesis around the investment in Blavity was that uh, young Black people are tastemakers. They they drive a lot of the themes that that ultimately become a part of popular culture, and so their influences is, is massive. Mm-hmm. And at the time, you know, there wasn't another. It actually still isn't another company that reach reaches as many young black people mm-hmm. as blavity does like consistently mm-hmm. uh and i remember when we did it was a long time ago now when we did the investment but when we when we made the investment i remember looking at some of the other uh call them black media brands and looking at their reach with you know with black millennials and it was crazy you had this like one or one to two year old company that had orders of magnitude more reach mm-hmm. uh, as far as that demographic went. So that was kind of, you know, <laughs> so it was easy. If you're going to make a bet in the space, you got to bet on them. Oh, and then, so I should say, and then, you know, brands also recognize the power of this demographic and want to be in touch with them, right? Want to market to them, et cetera. And so, you know, they're going to they're gonna put their, their spend uh, where they can get the biggest um, impact, right, or um, results from it, and so my my thinking on it was that that was going to be blavity. Uh, so far, it's been right, but then on top of that, you have Morgan, which is just—I mean, she's a force, mm-hmm. right? She she works tirelessly. She's revered by her her peers in in the industry, and you know she personally has a, a tremendous following of young black from you know young black folks, um, you know. All that aside, she's a tremendous leader. You know, her her team definitely definitely follows her, and and she had a she laid out a um, a really great vision for the the platform that they were building, and and they followed through on just about all of of that vision so far. So yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to. I'd invest in another Morgan if if mm-hmm. she came around, and uh, others should too. And then you've previously mentioned that you know sort of. Perversely, if a company receives investment and is looked at as a, quote, diversity play, that while there's a benefit to investing in, you know, of course, diverse founders, you know, the label of being a diversity investment can become an obstacle. What do you mean by this? And has this sort of um, stigma or challenge uh, changed at all throughout your investing career? Yeah, it's funny. I just I just had a debate with uh, with Jared over at Harlem Capital about this. Mm. You know, I first came to that thesis or mm-hmm. idea out of experience. You know, when I was at Intel Capital, I was one of the team members of two the diversity fund. So it was a hundred twenty five million dollar vehicle meant to be allocated over three years to Black, Latinx. Native American and women founders. And, you know, once we started deploying the capital and um, our company started to go out to raise additional capital or even bring other folks into the same round, they were constantly being asked the question of, you know, is, you know, is Intel really, really committed from a, 
from a financial investor perspective, or, you know, is this some type of, uh, you know, charity or foundation right, thing right. Or, or whatever, right? And, and they were spending a lot of their pitch time talking about that. Mm-hmm. And so when I set out to, to create cross culture, I was like, look, I want to, I definitely want to be a part of funding, you know, more black and brown founders for sure. Mm-hmm. And women hundred percent, but is there a way for me to do that without that unintended consequence? Right. Which by the way is, is, you know, is BS, right. They, yeah, that shouldn't absolutely. have happened to them, mm-hmm. but it was. And so that's why I made that, made that statement. And I stand by making that statement. Right. But now that our world has kind of evolved somewhat, and um, I think more people are starting to recognize that it's not charity, that there's an economic argument to be made for um, investing in Black, Brown, and, and women founders, mm-hmm. right? So I think in, 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 many, in many cases, that's, that's less of a thing today, but it, it's not gone totally, right? And as I told Jared in, in, our, in our debate, I was mm-hmm. like, look, you know, there are a number of ways to what skin a cat or, you know, to make a basket, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, what matters is that the ball goes in the hole, right? Um, and that you do it efficiently, right? And, and, so, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, there are, there's room in this, in this space for, you know, funds that you know, um, have a certain quota for investing in, in Black, Latinx, and women founders. And I think there's also space for firms like ours that where we do prioritize those, um, uh, those founders in a very meaningful way. I think 75% of our portfolio are led by Black, Latinx, or women founders. But it's not all that we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we definitely don't hold ourselves to, to that being our, our, our quota. Um, but we can also be successful mm-hmm. um, in in driving the you know the underlying mission forward, and we can also we can all be successful in terms of you know what matters in the business of venture capital, which is returning capital to our investors. So still stand by what I <laughs> what I said back then. Mm-hmm. I think the world is changing changing a bit, so it's becoming less relevant of a statement. But back then it was super relevant and one hundred percent factual. Sure. So last question on the topic of diversity and to sort of end uh, this topic on a, on a more positive note, both looking at today's environment and just looking forward, what, if anything, makes you optimistic about the diversity challenges in both tech and the VC ecosystem improving going forward? You know, the biggest challenge or reason for um, the disparity that we, that we see is uh, it all comes down to who's writing the checks, mm-hmm. who who's making the decisions, and you know until recently there there weren't a lot, and you know still not enough, but um, there weren't a lot of uh, Black Latinx and women decision makers at venture firms, right? Like human nature, right, is to work with people that we have a, a lot of commonalities with, mm-hmm. right? So you know if you're uh, you know, if you're a white guy that, that grew up in middle America, you know, then you went to Harvard or Stanford, you know, you're a member of a country club. It, there's, a, there's not a lot that you have in common with a Hispanic woman that grew up in the South Bronx that was, you know, one of five kids that had to go to community college and then go to uh, some other college 
but got her degrees and mm-hmm. is, you know, and is um, building, now building a company, right? It's just not a lot that you have in common with that person. Right. And so, you know, if, you know, that person comes into your office and then someone that resembles your exact experience comes into your office, you're going to be like, oh, this person can mm-hmm. definitely win, right? Um, and, and you're more inclined to bet on them. That's just human nature. It, it's, it's something that we all need to fight through, but we don't all do it as much as we should. And so the fact that the industry was primarily white and male, you know, that led to most of the startups being funded, being primarily led by white and male right. uh, founders. And so now, though, we're seeing, you know, more funds that are uh, where the leadership is, um, is majority black or majority Latinx or majority women. That just means that, you know, those entrepreneurs are going to get uh, a fairer shot at, you know, at goal. And so that's something that's, that's, that, that's changing. More of those funds are popping up. They're more, uh, not enough yet, but there's some LPs that are um, prioritizing, um, you know, making sure that they give uh, some of these uh, diverse led funds a, a real look and an opportunity to, to showcase what they can do and perform. And I think, you know, that continues to happen, then we're continuing to solve the pro- solve for the problem at its source. And I think that if you solve a problem at its source, you have a chance of actually, you know, getting to a positive resolution. I completely agree. Okay, and then shifting gears, you know, throughout your career, you have sort of, you know, given back and, and paid it forward quite a bit. And so I know you're actually... Uh, teaching a class at Cornell Johnson while you were based on the West Coast. And so why did you actually do this? And why is it so important for you to sort of give back and, and pay it forward? As you know, I know Cornell was impactful to your early career. Yeah. So, I mean, I taught that class, created it and taught mm-hmm. it for three years. Uh, I'm taking this year, this year <laughs> off actually mm-hmm. from, from teaching it. But, you know, we worked out a structure that, that, you know, that, that made sense for me where I didn't have to be on campus every week mm-hmm. um, for the semester and, and stuff like that. And I had two teacher's assistants that worked with me on grading and stuff like that. But the, the, the premise for, for creating it was once I, once I graduated from, from Cornell and I joined Intel Capital, there was still so much that I didn't know about venture mm-hmm. that I don't know that my... Um, professors in kind of venture and entrepreneurship at Cornell knew to teach because mm-hmm. they weren't necessarily practitioners. Right. And, you know, there are things that you read in the book and there are things that actually happen in practice. Yep. And um, I wanted to provide a situation where my experience was not, you know, the norm. It's not what was going to happen going forward. You know, so when folks, you know, take my class Essentially, I, I called it the venture capital apprenticeship. Like, you know, the, uh, the, they basically went out and found a deal um, to take through a diligence process and, and pitch that to the investment committee, which includes, you know, structuring a potential deal, et cetera. Right. Um, so they got a real look at, you know, what it would be like. And then I had industry professionals come in and um, be a part of that investment committee whatever you know funds i had folks from a lot of different funds right. um, 
join me and, you know, uh, look at the material that they put together and, you know, hear them pitching to the investment committee. And they had to suffer through all the questions (laughs) that, um, they either had answers to or didn't have answers to, but, you know, super learning experience. But yeah, that was the, you know, that was the thought, like, uh, make it so that, you know, that I had a very positive experience at Intel Capital, but, you know, the negative aspects of not knowing what I didn't know, could we could avoid that for other people. You know, I actually think that's incredibly uh, clever and just like a great insight, right? Especially for something like venture, where so much of it is, you know, sort of apprenticeship or mentorship driven. And you really just have to learn from people who have done it. Um, You know, I'm personally fortunate to have connections with a bunch of folks like that in the industry who are open to paying it forward. So I just think it's a a great opportunity that you've provided a lot of people just sort of as a concluding question, you know, as you look forward, you know, you've obviously been on both sides of the table as an operator and an investor. What are some of the major things that you want to accomplish in your career going forward? Oh, man. Um, you know, definitely want to be a, a, a staple on the Midas list, mm-hmm. <laughs> which means that, you know, my investments are, 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 are panning out the way that we all want. More important than that, though, I want our fund to be one that, you know, stands the test of time, right? That survives us working in venture, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, in I don't know how many years I'll do this for, but let's say, you know, that, that say it's the next 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. After those 20 years, I, you know, I want the folks that are um, kind of our junior partners now to, you know, to be the stewards of the fund and carry on, um, you know, what we, what we started to build and make it even greater. Um, so I guess, you know, some people call that legacy, right? But mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I think what we're building is important. And I want to see it live. I think that is a fantastic answer. I will just conclude it there. Uh, Thanks for taking the time, Marlon. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great.